If there's one burning question throughout the state of Missouri, it's who will be the Show Me State's next lieutenant governor. State Senator Mike Parson is hoping he'll be the answer to that question. The Bolivar Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our first Bolivarian to appear <laughs> on our show. A great honor we have as our special guest today. Mike Parson, and uh, good to be here in St. Louis this morning. It's great to see you again. You are a state senator. Um, before we ask you any questions about your life story and your, your time in politics, just tell our listeners your senatorial district and and which counties and areas in the state it represents. Well, my, my central district is the third largest in the state. It covers Lebanon, Missouri, Bolivar, Missouri, El Dorado Springs, and Sedalia, Missouri are the kind of points of the district. It's uh, about three hours across my senatorial district and uh, a great district for me. There's a lot of blue-collar workers there, uh, a lot of agriculture land there, which I enjoy very much uh, representing my district. It, it includes Sedalia, home of the state fair. Yeah, uh, now, yeah and I want to ask him about Bolivar. Okay. How Bolivar? Now, Bolivar is also the home of, or the original home of the hometown of Roy Blunt. Correct? That is correct. Okay. That's correct. And uh, how does it get pronounced Bolivar? Now, the country is Bolivar. I've always wondered about if there was a particular thing about the founding of Bolivar that dictated how the name is pronounced. You know, not that I know of. I'm sure it's just been picked up that way over the years. It's it's almost like Parson and Parsons. You know, there's a lot of Parsons with an yeah. S on it. Yeah. And then mine, Parson, without an S. But the history of that is, is supposedly just people come over and somebody maybe just left off the S. Yeah. So here comes the family of Just imagine line. how many times Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard has been referred to as Ron Richards over his political career, just as you probably have been called Parsons a hundred thousand uh, times, well, basically. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of a humorous deal, but uh, it's, it's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there oh. and they are the singing parson's sisters oh. Oh. so we're always confused with that a little so bit so you're always but, telling them that i'm i'm the singular parson not the parson's right, sister. right. Oh my gosh. Well. <laughs> the more you know the more you know so tell us a little bit about yourself i know that you had a varied professional background before you got into state politics right. just tell me your life story as succinctly as you can you know uh, probably a little unusual for most politicians that uh, where i started from but uh my, my parents were true farmers, uh, milk cows, hogs, chickens, and a big garden. And uh, growing up as a kid, uh, you hauled hay in a small town of Wheatland, Missouri, 356 people. Uh, you hauled hay. I remember me and my brother actually walked down the side of the road. We lived three miles outside of town, and you'd actually walk down the road and you'd pick up pop bottles at the time because you could sell pop bottles for a deposit. Uh, we didn't have much back then, but in the but on the other hand, we had everything. My mom and dad were married 63 years. They lived the life they wanted to live. And uh, so I wouldn't trade how I grew up for anything. Now, uh, what they what what did they do mainly? They they, they were farmers. The what did they grow? The, they, they, they had row crops. They milked cows. Uh, my dad milked cows. You lived on your milk check from month to month. Uh, you didn't go to the store but once a month. Uh, one of the things I always like to tell you, and I don't tell you this to feel sorry for me because that, that's the last thing I want, but when school year started, you got two pair of 
Levi's and a new pair of tennis shoes, and that's pretty well what you did for the rest of the year. So uh, much has changed since then. Uh, but I, I, like I said, I wouldn't trade that upbringing for anything. My, my parents were just good, good people and uh, give me, got me on the right track. I probably got off the right track a couple of times, but anyhow, they did a good job getting me prepared. And really one of the first times I left uh, Missouri was in the United States Army when I was 19 years old. I joined the military and got sent to Germany uh, right off the bat. And I remember when they gave me my orders for 21st Replacement Division, I remember I had to go back to the barracks and say, get on the world globe and say, now exactly where is Germany at? So uh, I went over there and I spent three years over there and really I was in the military police corps, so therefore my law enforcement career started. Worked my way into the military police, the criminal investigation division of the Army, re-enlisted, uh, a second tour of duty in the Army, and then when I come back home, uh, uh, I, I got back in law enforcement. But let me go back to one thing that, that does have a, a special part in my career. When I was 15 years old, I started working in gas stations. Okay. I started fixing tires and washing windows, and I guess maybe before child labor laws, that if they were there, we didn't know about them. Uh, I'll just put it that way, but I started working when I was 15. Uh, and uh, when I got back out of the military, uh, I was an investigator for the sheriff's office, and all of a sudden another gas station come open, and I bought a gas station and another gas station and got married, two kids uh, later, and uh, I was in small business for uh, many years where we kind of did very well. How my, many gas stations did you end up having? Two, two okay. at the time. Very, uh, one of them pretty good size uh, at the time that we had a record service, a muffler shop. Uh, we, we just did all the hard work, but I enjoyed that. Uh, I really did. I met a lot of people during that time. Now, at that time, my law enforcement ground, background was pretty extensive in the military. I got to go to some of the FBI training, uh, Department of Justice, and the old sheriff retired back home, and he says, hey, do you want to run for sheriff? So uh, I said yes after I had a lengthy discussion with my family uh, to say what it paid. That took a little while to get over that. <laughs> the time, I understand it. We had Caleb Jones on the show, and his dad, Kenny Jones, was obviously the Monotaw County Sheriff. And I got a sense that that job does not pay very well in rural parts of the state. Well, I'll tell you, it took a couple of days at least, uh, and my wife's here kind of sitting in the other room today, but to kind of convince her that this was uh, uh, what I wanted to do. It wasn't a smart decision because at the time, the sheriff of Polk County paid $22,000. Wow. Uh, I can remember that, and we were making substantial more. But, uh, you know, it was an opportunity for me to uh, bring what I had learned in the military and a professional career to a sheriff's office. It was, it was a lot like a country boy sheriff's office, and I wanted to change it. I wanted to make it into a first class. And when was this, by the way? 1993. Okay, 1993 continue. is when I when I, I done that. So, I done that uh, for 12 years as Polk County Sheriff. Were uh, you allowed to keep your gas stations? Uh, I had them for a while. I and, and we farmed all my life. I've always had cattle. So you and farm. did that while you were still being I sheriff. I did. I did for uh, for a while, and then I started selling the gas station portion of it and left the shop. Uh, you know, by the time I had the farm and I was the sheriff and I was trying to do a, a small business at the same time, it was problematic. And my wife, uh, she had spent 40 years in the banking industry, just retired a couple of weeks okay. ago. So it was pretty demanding at the time. But at the time, you're young and you feel like you can do a lot of things. Uh, so I did. But uh, when, when I got rid of the gas stations and, and went to the sheriff's office, and then fortunately after that, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do when I left the sheriff's office. I already announced I wasn't going to run again. And then the state rep. Uh, kind of come open, and, and I ran for the state rep. And I've been fortunate enough to run for the Senate and win the Senate. But the one thing I think I want people to know, running for sheriff back home was probably one of the most important elections I've ever had. Now, the titles have changed over the years. 
But that was the people that knew me the best. That was the people that I grew up with, I went to grocery stores with, we went to church together, and they're the people that really know you. So it was always an honor to to get that first election as a sheriff back home, and I think I always hold that to a little higher standard than in some of the other elections I've been through. Was it competitive? Did you have a vigorous opposition? It was. Uh, it, you know, you asked that question, Joe. Uh, when I ran for sheriff, I had three. There was three Republicans ran for sheriff. Okay. When I ran for state rep, there was three Republicans that ran. No, no Democrats. No Democrats. It, it's be, not a very de- even. Yeah, it's yeah. not a very Democratic yeah, area. Yeah. yeah, but it used to be. Oh, yeah, right. Used Did it? to be yeah. way back. Okay. And, Go and, ahead. And, and when I ran for uh, the Senate, there was actually three Republicans that I ran against. I do want to say this to both of you and to people who are listening. I have never run a negative ad about a fellow Republican candidate. Mm-hmm. I never have. I've been fortunate to win all the elections. I've had them ran every election I've had. Uh, people have said things, and that's fine. I, I understand the process. But uh, again, I, I think on the negative politics, uh, one of the things we're trying to promote is positive politics, and we've got overboard on, on how we're winning elections anymore, which is one of the reasons why I'm trying to. And that actually segues really nicely into our next point. So. One of the reasons I think that you're in statewide politics is a speech that you made right after the the death of Tom Schweik, the state auditor. Um, You were obviously, and as well as a lot of people, including myself, very hurt and moved by the death of Schweik, who who took his own life on February 26, 2015. I'm going to play a clip of, of this speech where you're talking specifically about an ad that was ran right before his death and kind of to showcase your disgust with politics of usual in Missouri. All right. To base things totally on one's appearance and to make reference to one being small and being able to be squashed like a bug should be unacceptable to all of us. It'd be totally unacceptable to all of us. One has to wonder, one has to wonder how his wife, his children felt, somebody you're married to, you love, that you live with, that you raise children with, how you think she felt for her husband to be described in such a way. How do you think those two children felt when somebody talked to their bed about their dad in that kind of life, that kind of description? How do you think they felt? How would you feel to put somebody in such a negative way? So very powerful words. I was listening to most of the speech to get a clip, and it was a very powerful speech. I kind of want to know what kind of went into your thought process behind um, making that address in the Senate how Tom Schweik's presence in your political career and your life affected you and how you want to move beyond what you just described in that clip. Well, let me go back to, to those days. Uh, Tom Schweik was, was, was what I felt like was a good guy. He was, he was not a personal friend. I had met him and Kathy at several occasions, like political arena. I thought he was a very intelligent man. I uh, thought he was very worthy to be a public servant. I think he was very true to that calling. Uh, however, for somebody to do what they did to him in the manner they did, I thought was totally wrong. And, and I thought ever since my careers have started and, uh, and, you know, as long as I've been around in life, we keep pushing the envelope. We keep pushing the envelope and we keep pushing it to where we're starting to trying to talk about people's character, their honor and their families and really just trying to destroy that uh, to win elections. And that's not what elections are about. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position, and why are you qualified to run? But anymore, it's got into such negative campaigning, the dark money, 
the things that are involved in politics right now that, that I, you know, I'm tired of, uh, frankly. And I think there's a better path. It's okay for somebody to show the difference on my voting record. It's open. Anything I've done in my past that's public, I think that's open. But uh, we're, we're, the money is so big in this state anymore. You've got a lot of consultants across this state that are in this for the money side of it, uh, not in it for the right reasons. And, and, and frankly, on the Republican side of things, uh, each year goes by and we almost destroy one another in primaries. And, and there's nothing left by the time you go into the general elections. And if we don't change that way, if we really don't change the way we conduct ourselves uh, as political leaders, uh, then I, I don't think it's a, a good future for us. I, I really don't. So I think it's important that, that we maintain some integrity and some honor in what we do. Now, the Republican primary for governor, which right. has four, has gotten pretty nasty. Not quite as nasty as that. But it's gotten pretty nasty. And, and by the way, just for our listeners, you were initially a candidate can, for, for governor, governor but you switched to the yeah. lieutenant that's governor. That's correct. Yeah, I was that's just going to uh, work into that. Right. But uh, And I do want to say, which I've said before, because I covered Schweik a lot and knew him relatively well, um, at his kickoff for governor, he was very, you know, aggressive against his Republican opponent and his Democratic opponent in his right. kickoff speech, which was less than a month before he died. Right. So uh, with, with, with that as a backdrop, I mean, my basic point was he could give as good as he got. Right. Um, a, did his death have anything to do with, um, or at least what was going on, influencing you to switch from running for governor to running for lieutenant governor? And what you're seeing now, I mean, your race so far has been pretty civil uh, between you and Bev Randall. But as I said, you know, there's potential in some of these other races, especially the Missouri governor's race, for it to get a bit more nasty in right. the next few months. Right. Just, I'm, I'm just interested in your observations and how, and especially, as I said, from the standpoint of where you are now. Right. Well, I think it's all up to us as individuals, as the candidates, to conduct yourselves in a professional manner. Uh, yeah, you just can't throw it out and say, hey, I don't want somebody to throw it back at me. You know, right. that, that, that's not what I'm talking about. The reason, multiple reasons in the governor's race, I really want to deliver a different message than most candidates. You know, again, I want to run on who I am, what my accomplishments are, and that's how I want the voters to judge me uh, on what I've done, uh, not on about destroying my opponent. If I got to win that way, uh, then I'm not sure I'm worthy of the election. Uh, I, I just, I don't want to win that way. I just do not. But what did prompt you to um, switch well, from governor to right. lieutenant governor? Well, you know, a couple of factors, and there were uh, several factors in there. One, I wanted to be able to keep on message. Okay. And it was going to be very difficult in the governor's race. Uh, you know, when the lieutenant governor got in the governor's race, you know, if you take your heart out of it for a minute and you have to think with your head and you look at the statistical information in front of you, you know, hey, the 8th Congressional District is a big deal to me. I've got to, for me to be a statewide candidate, I've got to do well in the 8th Congressional District. You know, Peter Kinder comes from the 8th Congressional District. So you had to be realistic here. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not into races to run well. This you know. is refreshing because very <laughs> few people will just come right out and say what you just yes. said. Go ahead. Yeah, well, that was part of it. And, again, I wanted to stay on message. I wanted to stay on positive politics. And I think if I was in a five-way race with the governor, nobody's going to care. We're not going to have this conversation. It's going to be multiple other things when you're the governor's race. And, and as time went by— I really felt in my career 
I'm very well suited for the lieutenant governor's race. And, and I'll tell you why, because nobody ever talks about what the lieutenant governor does. You know, uh, you go around and say, okay, what's the lieutenant governor's job? Uh, I don't know, you know, is what the response. But you have, the lieutenant governor of the state advocates for veterans. And being a United States Army veteran, I think that's very important. And we got 2,200 veterans across this state with no place to go, no bed to fill them in veterans' homes. But yet we have assisted living facilities. We have nursing homes all over the state with empty beds. There is no reason we cannot get those people in a facility somewhere to take care of them. You know, that it's, it's unacceptable. And the only reason we don't is because of bureaucracy between the federal and state government. The Veterans Hospital, which is a huge issue. Health care has changed so much over the years. Why can't a veteran go in his hometown and get medical care? Why does he have to necessarily go to a VA hospital? That's one of the things the lieutenant governor does. He advocates for seniors. Now, whether I like it or not, of course, we're on radio, but I got enough gray hair, I qualify. So sticking up for seniors is a good thing. And then tourism, the number two industry in the state, is important. And agriculture is a big deal to me. I want to do that. And uh, so there's some opportunities the lieutenant governor, I think, has suited for me in my career. Now, you talked about veterans and um, uh, nursing home facilities, you know, assisted living, those places. Right. What, as lieutenant governor, I mean, these are private enterprises, right. pretty much. Uh, what would you be able to do as lieutenant governor to maybe get the um, executives to look at some of your proposals? Well, I think I think who, whoever the next governor is, you know, one, I've been working on some of these issues for several years, so you do bring a little expertise. The only reason you can't get a veteran in a bed in their local facilities right now is bureaucracy between the federal and state government. That's the only reason. You know, it's taxpayer money, however you do taking care of veterans, which we should. I think we all believe in that. But I think getting to that bureaucracy, uh, and if you're the governor and lieutenant governor of the state, I think you have a little more horsepower to, to go out there and change that. Uh, why should a veteran drive two hours, like in my hometown, to go to Columbia, for example, two and a half hours away to get care? When you have a hospital in your hometown that can take care of those health care needs. Now, if he wants to go to a veteran's facility, that's fine. But why can't he get that care at home? Why does he have to go two and a half hours? And I think those are things that are just common sense issues that nobody's really took under their wings and really worked hard to do that. Uh, there was a piece of legislation I had this year. We have a huge shortage of CDL license in the state of Missouri for truck drivers. Right. We're, it's a huge problem in the state. Well, we have all kinds of military personnel coming off of Fort Leonard Wood that has driver's training for big trucks, vehicles, and everything. But yet the state won't uh, accept the, the training they've had in the military to come to Missouri, which is ridiculous. We ought to be able to change, transfer that license to a Missouri license immediately and try to keep those veterans here in this state. So those are the small things you can do, I think, as an advocate uh, to really change. And I got to do that this year as a senator, but uh, I think there's much more you can do. And, and for seniors, you know, most people want it, that worked all their lives in their careers, they just want to have a acceptable living standard. Uh, for the remaining years of their lives. And I think that's important. And, and you need to understand what it is that's important to them. So uh, I think those are pretty given for me. So so I look forward to those. So we don't know who the next governor is going to be. If it's a Republican governor, I think it's a safe bet that if you win, if you become the next lieutenant governor, that he or she will delegate a lot of duties to, to you, just as Matt Blunt delegated some duties to Peter Kinder. What we've seen over the last, what, eight years is, is, is Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder and Governor Jane Nixon have had a fairly non-existent relationship. It seems like he has delegated basically nothing to, to the Lieutenant Governor. 
if Coster is the governor, do you have right. an expectation that he is going to be more willing to have you help out in his administration and maybe help get things through the Senate, considering that it's going to be a, a probably a Republican supermajority no matter no matter what at this point? Well, I, I you know what my my entire career is sometimes it's about getting people together and finding out the solution to the problem. If Chris Coster is the next governor. Uh, I can tell you, and I'm the lieutenant governor, I'm going to find out ways that I can work with him that's good for the state of Missouri. And when you get to the economic side of it, you get the education side of it, we get to veterans issues, I'll figure out ways to do that. There will be some things we will never agree on. But hopefully you walk into that room someday and said, okay, look, we're not going to agree on these issues. So be it. Let's move on. So let's move on to the things that are important. And and when I talked about education, I think Missouri is really facing a huge problem with the skilled workforce. We're way behind on that. Uh, and we're and we're missing the boat per se that we need to do something to do a better job of that well that's not a republican or democrat issue that's a matter of making sure we got people in skilled areas where they can go out here and meet the demands of the workforce in the near futures and i i think that's a huge issue coming up for the state of missouri now i do i, I do want to say during the decades that i've been covering uh missouri politics that it's not unusual i'm not saying it's right but it's not unusual if the governor and lieutenant governor are of different parties, they don't talk. Right. I mean, you know, Mel Carnahan and John Ashcroft, when Ashcroft was governor and Mel Carnahan was lieutenant governor, the the tension was cut it with a knife. Yeah. And but but I think there's been examples of the there's been different parties where they have worked together, like Kit Bond during his second term. I from what I heard worked pretty well with Kenneth Rothman. Yes, so. well, part of it was because of Rothman's legislative experience. But that said, when you're looking at this, do you think that Missouri, I mean, that the lieutenant governor and the governor should be running as a ticket instead of, as they do now, it's separate? Yeah, no, I, th- I think running separate's good. I, I think it's a balance of the powers, and, and that's okay. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes to get along, you've got to work harder, and, and there's nothing wrong with, with pushing you a little harder to work harder. And you're right, if, if you decide you don't want to get along and you shut your office doors to each other, but at the same time, if you're elected official, you've made a commitment to the people to do what's best. When, when I ran for sheriff of Polk County, I made a commitment to be a good sheriff to the people. I didn't say I was going to do it for any particular party. I just said I was going to be a good sheriff, and I took an oath to do that. I, I think when you take an oath to me is a serious thing. When I, when I took it in the Army, when I took it as, as a sheriff, when I took it as a legislator, when I took it as a husband, those are all serious things to me, and, and my job is to do the best I can. Uh, Sometimes uh, quarreling, sometimes just saying no to everything is not a very good solution. So as Joe alluded to, you are in a primary against Bev Randalls. She, right. for a long time, was, the, I think, the chairperson or the president of the Club for Growth for Missouri, uh, longtime activist in uh, the state of Missouri politics. She was on her show. She, I think, spent most of her time doing what you're doing, talking about her background and vision right. for the lieutenant governor's office. But she did criticize part of your record especially on stem cell research. We're okay. going to play a clip right now, and we'll, we'll talk about it further. All right. But I think also on, uh, on things like, uh, like cloning and stem cell research, uh, he has been much more, uh, much more favorable to that. Uh, he actually voted for MoSIRA, which is, uh, um, which is a bill that, that essentially you know, opened the, the gateway uh, as many people see it, to uh, the uh, stem cell research and 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 <coughs> and. So, do you oppose it? I do. I oppose Mosira. So, a couple of questions there. Let me just ask sure. you point blank. 
Are you a supporter of embryonic stem cell research? I, I am not a supporter of embryonic stem cell. I have always been a very huge supporter of stem cell research. Yeah, and, and there is and a the, difference. There's yeah, a difference. And, and, that's, and why, other, that's, yeah. why I'm, that's why I made the right. distinction between right. embryonic right. Right. and non-embryonic. Yeah. Continue. Yeah, and, and I'm not interested in, you know, you can take the steps forward where you start talking about putting people in prison for research. I, I, th I think you got to really think about those things. Those, those are serious decisions you're talking about. Look. There, there's no doubt in my mind where my Christian values are, uh, regardless whether somebody endorses or don't endorses. I, I don't get into that as much as a lot of candidates do. But let me tell you, I've never supported cloning, and I don't know of anybody in Missouri that's doing cloning. Mm -hmm. If they are, I don't know it. But I don't support it, and if they were, I'd try to stop it. Mm -hmm. I would just tell you that right now. And there's never been any indications I've ever supported anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, and I bet, you know, I think... Uh, I, the last statistics I look, I think a few years back, I had a 92% rating with Missouri Right to Life. Right. Masira, when, when you bring up Masira, yeah, you can take a small piece of anything and make a little bit of a, a, a clip out of it. But Masira, I thought, was an economic and, development and tool. And I believe, Mosira, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, Masira for our listeners was this incentive tool to get life sciences and other type of, of businesses Correct. going forward. Correct. Sure. There was some fear that it could be used for embryonic stem cell research, right. which is why Missouri Right to Life has used it as kind of a club against right. other candidates, but right. continue. Well, and, and I think those are the kind of things you got to look at the, pi the picture of the whole issue in, in hand. And I don't see that happening. I, I do not see cloning in the state. I don't. And, and I would be the first to tell you, I would totally, uh, I would never support that. Th things get, you know, when you're, when you're a legislator and you vote on certain things, and there'll be a, a clip, I'm sure, someday I told some people this yesterday. <laughs> uh, you know, there'll be lots of clips probably. Yeah. But uh, ethics reform was one of the things that, uh, uh, that I told a group of people yesterday. A year ago, I voted against ethics reform. But the reason I voted against it, which they'll never tell this story, is because it exempted every legislator in the state capitol. Uh, the piece of language it did. And I said, look, I am not going to support anything and make us exempt to it. And I said, I oppose that, and people are going to figure this out before long. And so, thank goodness it didn't. This year, when I did support the bill, I put an amendment on there that says, okay, if we're going to implement this ethics reform, it has to be for all of us that are sitting here. And, for example, like what, one of the things you might be like the, the revolving door ban for lobbyists. Uh, it was a six-month ban that ended up passing, but I, right. I think it does include everybody. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, they, was, they, they yeah. Yeah, because the bill that you're talking about, which was a year or two ago, right. actually exempted everyone who was currently in the in the general assembly. Right, right. And it's, it's what the federal <laughs> it's what the federal government does all the time that you get so frustrated with, and then all of a sudden this is on the floor, and we're voting on it. And I'm just saying, hey, I can't do that. I do have to ask another question on the stem cell research front sure. because I in 2007 I was in the room when this anti-embryonic stem cell amendment, which was trying to repeal what is called Amendment 2, came through the House Rules Committee. Right. And I remember pretty distinctly, you were one of the people to vote against that, which effectively killed it. Was it because you didn't want to, like, throw researchers in jail or you didn't like the way it was crafted? Because I wouldn't be surprised if that came up during this campaign to kind of right. go against your, right. your anti-abortion well, credentials. It, it probably will. But uh, again, I'm going to just go back to where I've stood my whole career uh, sure. on, on the, that issue. At the time, I think I had just been, I, I was newly on the rules uh, committee at the time of that. But here was the first thing. The people had voted on this. Yeah, it was a constitutional and it was a, amendment. Yes, it was a constitutional amendment, and the people had voted on it. Whether I liked it or whether I didn't, do you change the will of the people of the vote, whether it was fair or unfair? I mean, that's how democracy works. That was one of the things that weighed on my mind. And at the time, frankly, I didn't know whether I could or I couldn't. 
Uh, you know, I hadn't been up there very long when I did that. Uh, but again, the people that just voted on that, uh, did I like it? No, but they did. Uh, so that was one of the factors. And then the other thing, like I said, I'm not in favor of, of putting people in jail if they haven't done anything wrong. Uh, now, uh, again, do I want somebody out there in my Christian beliefs? Uh, when you start talking about babies and, and at what time uh, that occurs, uh, that's, a, that's a big deal to me. I'm very touchy about that, all my values. But again, uh, the people of Missouri— uh, voted for a certain way, and that's the way they voted. Well, you, you and I were both at this state Republican convention this past weekend in Branson. Right. And a couple things, uh, well, actually three things. Uh, first, um, it was interesting in that, like, stem cell research, all that, m- many of the social issues, other than guns, weren't mentioned. It wasn't, it was, right. and two, everybody was obsessed with Trump Right. And and saying we got to stick with this guy right. because right. we don't want Hillary in the White House. Right. So there was really this strong message, and all of, uh, virtually all of the Republican statewide candidates spoke, including you. Right. And uh, I'm just interested in your thoughts as you were there and all this was going on. How this is going to affect your race? Do you think? And did you feel comfortable or not with the way everything turned out with the platform and everything? Well, first of all, let me go back to how it affects your race. Uh, nobody knows that answer yet right. because it depends what happens. Uh, you know what? I, I don't know what the Trump uh, issue is going to be like in the general election. I do not. I, I know he is our candidate at this point, uh, he, and he's going to be our candidate. I don't see anything changing there. So, you know, I have to hope for the best, uh, I, and I hope the one thing I hope, somebody like him, uh, with some of, some of his nominees, whether it be the Supreme Court or whether it's cabinet, I think are crucial at this point. I, I think who he surrounds himself with will define who he is. Uh, and, and until I see that, you know, which, which like I said, it will be so critical, you know, of who he gets around him because he's going to need help. Let, let's face it, when you've never been in the arena before, yeah. uh, it's a different version. But when you get in there, as most of us have been around the legislative process, whether it be a governor or president, you can say a lot of things on the stump. But getting them done at the end of the day is a totally different thing. Now, I'm I'm, I'm curious how you think he's going to do in Missouri because you you're in the seventh congressional district. Right. I, I think he lost that district by a not a wide margin, but a pretty significant one, given how close the race was. And I, I haven't seen any polling that says that Trump is going to lose Missouri at this right. point. But right. even if he underperforms and only wins by one or two percent, that right. has an effect on the down ballot races. Oh. So I'm just curious, how do you think he's going to do, even in Republican areas like yours? You know what? I, I think Trump is going to do well in Missouri. I, I do. I, and uh, I think people are just frustrated with the system as a whole and the federal government. And, and rightfully so. I think I'm frustrated with it. We all have been for quite some time just uh, – the, the gridlock that's up there where nobody gets anything done and you you, you do send majorities up there and, and nothing happens. And, and there's such a difference between the state-level politics because with the majorities we do have, we do get things done. I mean, some things, some things you don't always get done, but you know that you can do things. And when you sit there and you see the federal government don't stop anything, they don't get anything done through the bureaucracy side when they do the rules and the regulations, it's disappointing. It, it's, it's very disappointing when you're a state legislature and see that and you think, wait a minute. We can do that with majorities. Why can't you? And for some reason or other, it just gets into gridlock. And everybody's tired of that. I'm just telling you, the, uh, the people I go around and see are just very tired of that. Now, one of the other interesting things at the state convention is nobody mentions Schweik or the message or any of that. Right. Did that surprise you? You know, I, I don't know what it surprises me or not, you know, and I, I, I don't know how much 
worthy it is to bring it up all the time. You know, at some point you have to put things to rest and for his family. Uh, I will say this. Uh, Kathy uh, called me uh, on the on the day of, of his suicide and, and uh, reached out, and I thought that was very kind to her to do that. And I, I just feel for her and the family as they go through this. And I, I don't know how much you want to bring it up all the time. It's, it's going to be part of her history. It's, it's one of those darker days. And uh, for both of you sitting here today that I'm talking to and for the listeners, I don't blame uh, any one particular person to what happened to Tom Swat. I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't. You know, I've been in law enforcement for a long time, and unfortunately I've worked a lot of those situations. And uh, most of the time the, there's one person that, that, that uh, commits the act, and for multiple reasons. So uh, I, I want everybody to know I, I don't have no hard feelings towards that. My heart goes out to the family. Uh, whether you bring it up or not, I, again, maybe that's for me. Maybe that's for other candidates someday to say, hey, look, I'm, t- I'm doing a different route. Maybe that's the inspiration you get out of what happened. But I don't know just bringing it up all the time is, is, is good for the family. Now, if you win the uh, nomination, mm-hmm. uh, either you or Randall, but in, in this case we're talking about you, um, you've, it, there's no guarantee, but there's a likelihood that you would be Possibly running against Russ Carnahan, the former congressman who has right. the family name, right. originally from Rolla, although he was a congressman from St. Louis. Right. Um, I'm just interested how you would define, I mean, just in general, because obviously it's it's May, uh, how you would define the differences and would would it, would it be a national thing where you would focus on his national record or do you think it, it becomes more about Missouri? Well, one, his record on the national level definitely will be part of the campaign. I mean, uh, he's going to be like me. He's going to have votes, uh, and, and I'm going to sure illustrate what those votes were, how, how what I think harmful they are to the state of Missouri. So that's going to come. You know what? I, I actually look forward to a, to a candidate uh, to have a, have a race with Russ Carnahan because I think uh, of all the tickets and all the people running, I think you're going to have two distinct individuals, uh, one coming from rural Missouri, one from Cayman's from St. Louis. Uh, one's an attorney. Uh, one's a farmer and a small business owner. You know, I look forward to that challenge. And, and I think over the years, uh, you know, with some of the endorsements I've got through almost all the ag communities, uh, which agriculture is our number one industry in the state, and for the things I've got to do in St. Louis, uh, and an example of that is a few years ago, the Jewish Federation up here, uh, I had a chance to go to Israel uh, on economic development because I was in the military and my ag background. And you go to those countries and you think, okay, I'm very fortunate and, and blessed to go to this country, which Israel was, was a big deal to me biblically and just to have the experience to do that. But when you come back, what's important is what do you do with that experience? And when I come back, I found out that we had an economic development office in Israel with 29 other states. So I said, well, that's no good because how do you know where you are in the pecking order of 29 right. with Texas and the Carolinas? Right. So when I got back, I actually passed a piece of legislation that put our own standalone office in, in Israel. Uh, we have our own economic development office in there that, that we funded, and there's been three startup companies that have come out of that trip back to Missouri. So when it comes to St. Louis region, I've always been very supportive of here, the economic development side of it. Uh, I understand the, the education side of it uh, up here, what you can do. But, uh, you know, I'm excited about the challenge. Now, I'm interested about this uh, this factor in the general election because you were heavily involved in a couple of things, the right to farm amendment and also right. kind of changing this uh, uh, a, a, a initiative petition that passed in 2010 dealing with dog breeding. Right. Th- right. The, the interesting thing about that first one is 
that initiative petition was incredibly unpopular in rural Missouri because it would have put a lot of farmers and right. dog breeders right. out of business. Right. But it was very popular in some parts of St. Louis and right. St. Louis County. I actually remember Jean yeah. Cunningham voting against the, the changes because she said more people voted for that than voted for her. I'm wondering how that's going to like factor into the campaign, not just that particular yeah. initiative, right. but just right, those right. two initiatives dealing with agriculture. No, you know what? I am I'm looking forward to talking about that, Jason, because let me tell you, I, I don't think that the people in the urban areas are not against rural Missouri. That's one thing you have to understand about the state of Missouri. Uh, that I've learned over the years being up there. For Missouri to do good, you need the urban areas to do well plus the rural area. It, it should never be rural versus urban. Right. And, and the two issues you're talking about was exactly Although that. Although it usually is. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the true. problem was with, with Proposition B, for example, when Proposition B passed on the ballot uh, on the initiative petition process, it put everybody out of business. Every dog breeder in the state of Missouri, whether you have a blue, kid, blue uh, ribbon kennel, which you have up here in your segment mm-hmm. of state, Put them out of business. They they couldn't operate on that. So that really becomes unconstitutional when you just put everything out of there. So that's why those changes was made. I have talked uh, needless times in St. Louis and Kansas City, and I do not believe people are against rural Missouri. I don't believe they're when you talk about right to farm. I don't think they're against farmers at all. I don't see that. I think we're so removed from agriculture in this state. It's an education process for everybody to learn where does food come from. How are we doing it now versus the old days? And, you know, if you've never lived on a farm before, you have this image sometimes that we don't take care of the cattle. We don't take care of the livestock. You think of CAFOs, confined animal facilities. Right. You don't think about how the environment, or how we take care of the environment anymore. But if you really look at what we did in agriculture, we're probably more stewards of the land, better stewards of the land we ever have been through technology uh, of how we do things, of how we take care of livestock, because it's a way you make a living. And the one thing I do know about Missouri, everybody likes to eat in Missouri. So I have figured that out. So agriculture is important to the entire state. So I look forward to that. But there has been some controversy in recent years. In fact, this came up on the whole right to farm thing. Because of these larger, I mean, these gigantic, Mm -hmm. what one might call them factory farms. I mean, with with some of them with pigs and some with chickens. Mm -hmm. And that does run, I mean, they are in, in competition with, the family farmers, and you've got some parts of the country. In fact, I was just reading an article about one in Illinois where a lot of uh, farmers who had been in the pig business ended up having to drop because of these gig- the gigantic, um, I guess you'd call confined it. Confined animal yeah, facilities. Yeah, confined CAFOs animal facilities yeah, that right. were being run by corporations nearby. I'm just interested in your take on A, since you're you've been a farmer, kind right. of your thoughts about that, and B, what would the could what could the lieutenant governor do or not do about easing some of the controversy? Yeah, I, I think one of the things is educating each other. I, I think reaching out to the urban areas is critical, and I tell farmers all the time, look, you can't just stay on the farm and do nothing anymore. The people in St. Louis, Kansas City, or Columbia, or Springfield, where it might be. You know, we have to reach out to them and educate them on what it is we do and what these facilities are all about. And, and Joe, if you if you think of what we have to do in the next 35 or 40 years in agriculture just to meet the demands of the population, for 200-plus years of the existence of our country in, in the United States, we're now going to have to double that production in the next 40 years to meet the demands, the next 40 years to meet those demands. You know, so we're going to have to do a better job in agriculture of how we do to produce, but you still got those demands 
And I wish you could. I wish everybody could have a little old acreage with a few chickens and a, and a hog and a cow and all this picture perfect thing. Mm. But the reality of it is, that's not the way you'll feed the world. Uh, and 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 right now, if you have a animal confined facility uh, uh, that we're doing, you're going to find out that they are regulated, that, that that they are doing a better job than they've ever done. But those demands are there, and they're not going to go away. Well, uh, we, we are out of time. We want to just appre- extend our appreciation of you traveling all the way to be here because I know you just came here just for us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's on the radio station. I'm I a hope politician. that's not. I hope <laughs> no, in all seriousness, we often ask uh, people from out of St. Louis to schedule uh, coming on our show when they're going to be here anyway. Right. So we do appreciate your time. I'm going to make this declaration as I did with the treasurer candidates. Whoever wins the primaries for lieutenant governor can come back on our show during yeah. the general election because it'll be a completely different flavor to what we've had now. Yeah. So thank you Good. again. Thank uh, you, Jason. Follow all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And, and are you on Twitter at all at we this point? We are on point? Twitter. Just Mike Parson from Missouri on Twitter. I got a Twitter account, Facebook. Is it for F-O-R or for the number? It's just Mike Parson. Mike Parson. Let me just double check this to make sure we got the right name. Yeah. It's actually Mike Parson for Mo. You're yeah, right. right, right, right. With, and it's, spelled, it's four, not the number four. Okay, yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. We, will be, we will be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs>